Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean, Stuart, welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Well, it's a story not of two cities this week, but two provinces, uh, Alberta and Quebec, uh, making waves, kind of throwing elbows here in terms of uh, a lot of conventions, maybe, that we have as Canadians about how this country operates, the principles to which it's dedicated. So the first half of the show, I want to kind of go to both La Belle Provence and uh, Stewart's old stomping ground, uh, Alberta, to give a sense to our listeners that maybe uh, something important could or should or is happening to Canadian federalism at this moment. And then in the back half of the show, uh, guys, uh, let's let's talk uh, China, because I think we've had a, a pretty raucous uh, week there of protests, uh, this new Canada-Indo-PAC strategy. How does all this stuff play together, fit together, does it? So domestic on the front half, international on the back, but let's start with the Sovereignty Act. Uh, Stuart, you're, you've got some cred there, uh, having lived in Alberta, having been a political reporter at the Edmonton Journal. Danielle Smith leaning hard into the Sovereignty Act in the initial weeks of her new government. Uh, what do you make of this? Um, you've written about it this week for the Hub. How serious is her challenge to, again, many of the conventions that we've had for a long time about how Canadian federalism could and should work? Yeah, I think this has been a great, um, just f- fantastically interesting story. Uh, and part of it is, you know, we're kind of used to this in Ontario, where um, your perception of a policy or legislation is kind of skewed by the rollout and then the kind of elite reaction to it, which is sometimes out of proportion to uh, how the average person might react. And I think we've seen a lot of that with this one where, you know, in Alberta, we have cabinet ministers who are openly admitting they haven't read it and can't answer questions about it. And the next day after rolling it out, they're talking about amendments to the bill. Um, So not a great rollout. And this is the kind of thing that really hurts you when you're trying to do big controversial things. And I think going into it, they knew it was controversial. So there's not a lot of excuse there um, for why it was rolled out so poorly. Um, The big debate that we're seeing right now in our pages and everywhere is whether or not it's constitutional. And, you know, maybe to throw this to you guys, but I would just say, this is a debate for academics. Um, I, I find even with the left who are criticizing this bill, they are, sometimes loath to just say, hey, this is a bad idea. They want to say this is unconstitutional, this is illegal. And rather than just make the argument on sort of normative terms that maybe um, enlisting all of these institutions and agencies in Alberta, like municipalities and schools and school boards to join your fight against the federal government is a bad way to go about it. I think that's probably a better argument than the constitutionality one. And it's just the one that we're not even really having right now. Let's bring you into this, Sean. What I'm struggling with is just to understand how important is this really? Like, again, let's put the constitutional stuff aside for right now. It's kind of like how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin, but instead talk about how real is this? Is this a substantive challenge to 
federal powers and prerogatives? Is it a meaningful assertion of provincial rights in a way that is novel and new and could change the balance of power between Alberta um, and Edmonton and Ottawa? Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, we've had division of power conflicts in our federal country dating back to Confederation. You know, the history nerds listening to the podcast will know about the judicial, you know, the JCPC, which was responsible for adjudicating these um, division of power conflicts before we had our own Supreme Court even. Um, but we've all agreed in, to a process to resolve instances where there are these division of power conflicts, and that's the legal system. And what she's in effect saying here in this legislation is, we're going to adjudicate it ourselves. Um, we're going to make those judgments when we disagree with federal action. Um, we're, we're in effect going to um, merely ignore uh, federal policy. And, and you know, it seems to me that is uh, uh, something different um, than the type of, of conflicts that we've seen in the past, where all parties have agreed, even in, in moments of profound disagreement, to avail themselves of our conventional means of working through these things. Let me just make a couple of quick political points, if I may. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't. You know, guys, this was a major issue in the UCP leadership. I think it's fair to say it's the one issue that distinguished Danielle Smith from her competitors. And there's been an open question really since the first day she committed to it, whether she would whether she would honor her commitment when she became premier or whether she'd find a way to water it down um, and in effect um, side with uh, a lead opinion that was opposed to it. And what, what's interesting is I think she essentially doubled down. She this piece of legislation broadly conforms to the free Alberta strategy proposal that it was the kind of intellectual impetus of this idea in the first place. And my kind of take on that is um, Daniel Smith let down conservatives years ago and then spent the subsequent several years sort of rebuilding her credibility. And she might know in her heart of hearts, this is a kind of crazy idea, but I, I think she, she couldn't bring herself to disappoint conservatives once again. And so she's stuck with this piece of legislation that I think will be a kind of defining issue in the next um, provincial election campaign. And, um, you know, I don't know, I defer to Stuart, but it seems to me that voters in Edmonton and Calgary will be open to arguments from the bill's critics um, that it does to kind of come back to my first point, represent something different than the normal way in which federal and provincial governments have worked through disagreements in the past. But Stuart, isn't there a win here for Danielle? I mean, it's kind of like, she's now showing up with a gun to the knife fight. So regardless of whether the gun shoots blanks or not, um, jams or um, she's off target, this creates, I would think if you're in, you know, intergovernmental, interprovincial affairs in Ottawa, this creates uncertainty. It creates leverage possibly on the part of Alberta around other issues. I mean, isn't there... Isn't this a strategy that wins simply by existing and that maybe people are too preoccupied about the minutia and the mechanics? As you say, this is this is a flexing um, of Alberta's political mood at this moment, which is very anti-Ottawa that understandably feels that a lot of government policies, federal policies are antithetical to the province's interests. And, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to this. I mean, I'm in Ontario, but 
the federal government by by announcing you know an immigration target of 500,000 people a year half of which are going to settle in the GTA is in effect going to push up our carbon emissions by a significant amount and guess who has to do the majority of work to reduce those emissions to meet you know our Paris accord and all these other climates well guess it's going to have to be Alberta it's going to have to be forgoing uh, the the exploitation of the hydrocarbon resources in that province uh, that pay for a lot of the provincial government and, well, frankly, a lot of transfer payments around the rest of the country. So why isn't Daniel Smith right that this is this is needed? This is necessary. It's time for Alberta to push back. Yeah, I don't I don't preclude the idea that maybe this will be a, a net positive for her, and especially because we saw. You know, there was real stumbles out of the gate with this. Um, but what did actually happen was that you had experts on both sides saying like, well, you know, this isn't as bad as it could have been. And some were saying this is terrible. And the people who were saying it was terrible were the people who you'd expect to say that. And you could have had this um, sort of um, elite stalemate on it, which I think is the best case scenario for Smith. Um, and I think that's still a possibility. The trouble is, though, is how this gets used. And we don't know yet um, what the intentions are here. So the government could quite easily pass this and say, listen, this is our sort of, you know, um, ballistic missile shield against Ottawa, and we'll only use it if something big comes down. And then you have an election in the spring, and that's it. They have this shield and they didn't use it. Um, they might be spoiling for a fight, though. And I don't actually know the political situation in Alberta is so bifurcated that it's really hard to know how that will play out because I know there are people in the cities who are kind of broadly sympathetic to sort of moderate UCP ideas who think, can we just focus on economic growth and can we benefit from this oil boom and stop um, getting distracted by all this stuff? Um, and there are others who say, no, we need to show Ottawa who's boss. And I don't know where the line is on that right now. It's really kind of messy. Um, so that fight could benefit Smith or it could be a huge distraction. I just don't know. Um, but you know, it could go those two ways and I don't know where Smith wants to take this. It could be a big fight. It could be super interesting. Thanks for that, Stuart. I love the fact that we are a distributed network, uh, here at the hub. We've got Jeff Russ out in Vancouver. We've got your experience, Stuart, in Alberta. You're coming to us from Ottawa, but we have Sean right on the Quebec border with, uh, Ontario, uh, Orleans? Is, no, you're, Sean, is it Orleans or is it further out? I'm in Lorniel, which for our uh, unilingual Anglophone listeners uh, translates to moose. Uh, so when you pull into town, um, there's a, a big moose. Nice. So I'm going to throw the Legault question to you because I think it builds on what we were just talking about, Alberta, which is the provinces, in a sense, starting to throw elbows here. Legault now saying... All immigrants coming into Quebec uh, will just unilaterally have to speak French. We are not going to even, in a sense, give a nod to the Canadian mosaic, the melting pot, the idea that integration is something we do really well in Canada, and language skills, obviously, is part of integration. It's part of understanding or believing that people can acculturate, uh, adapt, become something new, a Canadian citizen, uh, a resident of Quebec. I don't know, Sean, I just, I add this to Quebec's, uh, what I can only call uh, 
borderline, you know, racist laws on religious symbols that discriminate overwhelmingly against, you know, many visible minority communities whose religious symbols are in fact as much cultural expressions as they are religious expressions. Does this again just suggest that federalism is like on the ropes here and the provinces have the bit in their mouth and they are pulling this country not in a different direction, they're pulling it apart. Yeah, the and and there's a dialogue going on among the provinces, right? Like Alberta and Saskatchewan or others are watching Quebec um, exercise power vis-a-vis Ottawa and Ottawa flinch. And all that does is reinforce for Scott Moe in Saskatchewan or Daniel Smith in Alberta, Doug Ford in Ontario, um, that there really is no voice representing the national government and the country's national interests. I think that's a one of the reasons why these two stories are connected. Um, let me just take up the Quebec issue, though, because I, you know, I, I'm actually kind of an admirer in some ways of Quebec culture and Quebec society and Quebec's sense of self and all the rest. Um, but they have a kind of cultural and demographic problem before them that it looks to me like it's essentially unsolvable. They, uh, as you say, Rudyard, have made choices with respect to immigration about uh, the type of people and um, and the types of places that they want to target, including now this um, extraordinary um, criteria around language. At the same token, uh, they have, um, you know, I checked before the conversation, a pretty middling for, uh, provincial fertility rate. It's not the lowest in the country, but it's, it's certainly not the highest. Um, and when you put those two together, and you combine it with the fact that uh, the national population is growing significantly, Quebec is just going to matter less in Canada. It's now 22% of the national population. And you know when you add all these things up, it's just going to be more and more diminished. And that's why, for instance, we're hearing from Legault and others that the federal government ought to codify the, prov- the province's share of seats in the House of Commons, because if left to its own devices, it's going to decline more and more. The province is on a bit of a, you know, to kind of speak frankly, a bit of a suicide mission here. And it needs to either reconcile itself with higher levels of immigration and a more inclusive immigration policy or an extraordinary pro-natalist policy. But in the absence of those two things, it's just going to matter less and less in the United Canada. Yeah, it's great. A great analysis. You know, you kind of think of Louisiana, right? Uh, In a sense, the shards of the original French empire, the other piece of it in the South, and how exclusionary policies and a history of, of, frankly, racism has created for the entire, you know, southern United States, um, pretty dismal outcomes. So your attitudes about people, their potential, uh, the type of culture and values that you espouse, you know, over the long term correlate, I think, directly to your standard of living, to the extent to which your society is economically di- dynamic or stagnant. And it's hard to see, Stuart, you know, again, Quebec can go down this course. They, they have a democratic legislature. They can figure this out for themselves. But in Ottawa, Stuart, the, the, just the, the timid, the timidness, the I guess these are old muscles we haven't used in a long, long time. But, you know, where is the, especially with this prime minister, you would think, and the Liberal Party historically, some argument in favor of a more robust federalism? 
Yeah, and the, the kind of irony here is that as um, electoral majorities don't have to go through Quebec anymore with its diminished count, then the Tibbiness would go down. Um, I think actually there's um, some, I was born in Scotland and I think probably if I lived in Scotland, I would be a sovereigntist of some kind. And I think there is something to be said for a distinct culture and you know wanting to build a nation out of that. Um, and I, it always bugged me during the independence referendum arguments where people would say, well, your GDP will go down, your GDP per capita will go down, as if that's the craziest deal in the world to want to control your own cultural destiny in exchange for a few bucks. Um, I think, though, with Quebec, you have to know you're making that deal before you make it. And um, as Sean mentioned, pro-natalist policies, I'm generally in favor of those. But anyone who's looked into that even a little bit will know that is the hardest slog. That is the hardest policy slog to actually get results from. If you look at what Hungary did, where they were basically backing up dump, dump trucks full of money onto people's driveways to have babies, it barely moves the needle. It will move the needle, but just very slightly, um, certainly not in the way that immigration can. So I would suggest that if Quebec does want to go down this road, you can't sort of do it belligerently. You can't do it um, saying we want no bad outcomes from this um, if we're not willing to make some of the sacrifices involved here. Well, even worse, we want the federal government to pre-insure us from all those bad outcomes through transfer payments, through, you know, guaranteeing our seat counts. I mean, I don't know, guys. Um, I've long, long given up, you know, waiting for some political party, you know, to make a case for a, ro a more robust uh, kind of Ottawa that leans into some of these debates. Maybe it can't change the outcome, but it can at least, you know, argue the case. And I'm, maybe this is what it means to live in a, what was the prime minister's phrase? A kind of post, it wasn't postmodern, but post-national kind of country, a country that really is just an amalgam of a series of individuals that are interested in different things that come from different regions that have different priorities, you know, hotel Canada, um, we used to kind of worry about this and fret, and it was a source of of some kind of national introspection. I don't know. I think the Motel 8 is now open. Legault's got a room. Daniel Smith's booked hers. Uh, I, Doug Ford, I think, has cozied in uh, next, to, next to the Coke machine, um, uh, the ice machine. So I don't know, guys. I don't know where this goes. But let's, let's put a pin in this half of the show. We're going to come back on the other side of the break and talk China. Lots of big developments there and a Canadian angle to dig into. So back to you in a moment. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was... Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You are listening to the Friday Hub Roundtable. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. Uh, on this half of the show, guys, I want to talk China. We had a Tumultuous week in the Middle Kingdom, protests uh, erupting in a variety of cities over COVID lockdowns, um, and a new Indo-Pak strategy announced by the government of Canada. Some people saying, uh, good, 
uh, an important first step, but to a certain extent, Canada remains a country from the outside looking in to uh, allies and alliances that have now largely been drawn. Sean, I know this is something you've written about uh, this week in the pages of The Hub. So what's your take? Is China at a turning point and is Canada at a turning point when it comes to its relationship with China? Yeah, let me, let me take up the latter. Um, I'd really be interested in your thoughts on the former. I know you follow global affairs closely. Um, on the latter, I think the answer is yes. Uh, I think in the past several weeks, we've seen um, a pre-planned rollout of this new way in which Ottawa is conceptualizing the country's relationship with China. Probably in hindsight, it started with Christia Freeland's speech at the Brookings Institution, um, and it culminated this week, or I guess last Sunday now, uh, with the rollout of this new Indo-Pacific strategy, which uses language to talk about the country's relationship with China that, frankly, we haven't seen in decades. Um, you know, if you think about it, basically since um, China's ascension to the World Trade Organization, we've had successive governments that have um, opted to pursue to advantage our commercial and trade relationship um, at the expense of um, you know national security considerations, human rights, um, and so on. And I think what we see from the Trudeau government, to its credit, a shift. Um, you know, what I wrote in my article for the Hub this week is I don't know how much of that shift is motivated by you know a kind of genuine change in the kind of hearts and minds of people around the table. Or if it's a growing recognition that this is the cost of doing business in Washington, where there is a clear-eyed recognition on a, in a bipartisan way um, that the U.S. is is in the midst of what Neil Ferguson describes as Cold War II, and if Canada wants to be part of electric vehicle supply chains and and other um, economic opportunities moving forward, it was going to have to come firmly down on the side of the U.S. camp in this new modern Cold War. And I think that's essentially what we saw um, today or this week. Let me just put something to you, Rudyard, though, because I've been meaning to ask you this now for a while. You know, maybe your first, your reflections on what we're seeing in China. And then secondly, you know, do you have any thoughts on um, the extent to which if China, uh, if the Chinese government does react to these growing protests by essentially liberalizing their COVID zero policy, what's the implications for the rest of us? Is there potential that we'll see a, a kind of another global spike in, in COVID? Yeah, look, I'm last thing I am as an epidemiologist, uh, but there is some interesting analysis out there that if you take a population of 1.3 billion and let the virus rip through it, you're going to get a lot of mutation. And especially that these people have not probably had the same natural levels of acquired immunogenicity through just run-of-the-mill infections. So, yeah, I, I don't know where that goes, but I I don't know. I had a different take on this week. I think, and maybe this won't appeal to some of our listeners, but I'll say it for because it's what I believe, that there's this certain like Western bias in the media that I find amusing. Whenever protests erupt, erupt in authoritarian countries where we... We start cheerleading right away. We're like, wow, they're like us. They want the same things we want. You know, yay, democracy. Francis Fukuyama was right. Uh, it's the end of history, and and we're what the end of history looks like. And as you know, one Chinese commentator who you can get on the Monk uh, podcast, which I also uh, host, Victor Gao, who's like a big spokesperson for the government. Uh, I had him on the program talking about Taiwan. Just fascinating to get like the inside China view. 
you know, his comment, it's a good one. He says there's 1.3 billion people in this country. The fact that you've got protests in, a, in literally just two or three different cities involving people numbering in the hundreds, and Shanghai has always been, uh, to their credit, a somewhat obstreperous uh, culture and region and part of China. Uh, they've always been more modern and progressive when it comes to uh, certainly economic rights and associated democratic privileges as the party allows them or not. So I don't know. I, I just, uh, curious as Stuart's thoughts on this, but I think there's something about the media where we see something, we think, oh, we know what that is. We, you know, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, so it must be a duck. When in fact, I think these protests were a reaction to just horrible lockdown conditions and and the political aspect of it, I, I think is just being completely overblown and some very like wishful thinking that, you know, this is Tiananmen too. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, I think the media always loves the story of people yearning to breathe free. Um, and I think that is, I think we also like to position ourselves in the middle of some big event. Like the Arab Spring was one of those moments where, you know, you kind of optimistically want to think the best of what's happening and you want to hope for the best for these people. Um, but I totally agree. The, some of the stories of the lockdowns in China are just intolerable. I, I honestly can't believe that that kind of stuff was going on. And I can't believe that they're not able to enforce a vaccine mandate, but they can lock people in their homes for hundreds of days. Uh, it's almost unbelievable. Um, and I think that is probably the concern here is that China's in a bad spot. Uh, Xi Jinping is in a really bad spot here where he either has to keep locking people down or this virus is going to find a way around the population. And then you have extremely low vaccination rates among their elderly citizens. And I, the, the two possibilities here are just horrifying either way. Um, and then politically and economically, those things are going to spiral out. So um, this is going to be a really interesting winter for China. And, you know, maybe there will be no grand changes in the geopolitical stage, but the internal politics of China will change and the internal situation for so many people on earth will change. Can I take up um, both of your points? I think Rudyard, uh, there was a tremendous amount of insight. I mentioned Neil Ferguson earlier. I think his supervisor, or at least a, a sort of mentor, was A.G.P. Taylor, who, of course, famously wrote uh, his book on the origins of the Second World War and challenged the idea that it was all driven by Hitler. Um, you know, he in fact made the case that the German people um, uh, were culpable as well. And I, I think that. Uh, that we we can't get our minds around that, right? We want to sort of blame uh, our relationship with China and the actions of, of the Chinese state on a small cabal of uh, leaders. And, you know, I, in the Indo-Pacific strategy that the government released, there's the following passage. You could just imagine, um, you know, the instinct to, to write this, quote, as we forge ahead with a strong, broad-based approach to China, we must always remember to differentiate between the actions of the current Chinese government, with whom we have differences, and the Chinese people. The bedrock of the relationship remains the people of Canada, China, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, without recognizing the level of kind of nationalist sentiment in China, um, the extent to which, you know, the Chinese population, I mean, obviously, I don't want to generalize, we're talking about over a billion people, but I think are pretty, in broad terms, are pretty, pretty committed to the idea that their model represents an alternative to the kind of liberal democratic capitalist model. I think in a way, we're almost kidding ourselves if we think that, um, you know, that that the Chinese people, however one goes about defining that, actually is kind of on our side. I, I think that that fails to understand the nature of this 
technological and geopolitical rivalry that is going to define the, the coming decades. Yeah, and I would say, I think one of the very first things we published as a video talk on the Hub's YouTube channel is um, a conversation that I had with Zhang Weiwei, who's one of China's leading kind of um, uh, public intellectuals. He's kind of like the Fareed Zakaria of China. I like to think that as a shorthand. And I would urge everyone to go back and watch that interview because there, we forget that the Chinese are intensely proud of their their claim to a remarkable civilization <laughs> that stretches over millennia. And there's a perception deeply embedded in the Chinese psyche that the last 200 years is truly an aberration that they're dealing with now quickly and they will return to kind of global paramount status uh, at a place where they've spent most of human history. So good point well taken, Sean. And, and uh, I, I don't know, Stuart, maybe just to give you the last word in this segment, you know, does Canada's strategy, um, this Indo-Pac strategy, kind of rise to the moment. You know, there's a big funding pledge around it, multiple billions of dollars, which people suggest, uh, you know, shows some something behind mere intent. Uh, I guess it's just, once again, you know, execution. Um, will this be a government that follows through uh, to make that strategy into something that's muscular and projects, you know, Canadian interests and values in alignment you know, first time more explicitly with our allies, most notably the United States. Yeah, every single person I spoke to about this um, said that's exactly the thing to watch. I mean, the words are in the strategy. That's great. Um, you're 20% of the way there. Um, and one thing I, you know, I spoke to um, conservative MP Michael Chong on Monday, and he pointed something out that I think is worth paying attention to. Similarly, in Alberta, it's always worth looking at divisions in the cabinet and what people are saying. Um, the, the comments by Freeland and Minister Champagne, Champagne was talking about decoupling and, you know, Freeland has been talking about friend shoring. Jolie actually went out of her way to sort of shut those down. Um, she said, they're not talking about decoupling. Um, she has never said friend shoring. And I think, you know, this is something to watch out for is if there's sort of two factions in the cabinet and then the prime minister is sort of, you know, going between those two factions, then you usually don't get anywhere. Um, so that's something definitely to watch out for. Um, and Stuart, going between the two factions, the prime minister's in one of the factions. I mean, he's refusing to tell us uh, anything about these uh, candidates in the last federal election who were uh, arguably, according to reporting by Global News, uh, now seemingly confirmed by other news sources that, you know, CSIS had uh, identified a clear and present danger of the manipulation of our election through candidates running for federal office. Yeah, I, as I was saying that, I was thinking Roger's going to jump in here. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think that and you're probably right. Um, but I, the other thing to watch out for, too, I'll just say to our listeners is watch out for a piece from Patrick Luciani next week, um, kind of making the point that I think is worth throwing out there. And I, I don't think we'll know to the extent to which it's true, but China is um, demographically in a bad way right now. Um, they can only be doing themselves economic damage with the lockdowns they're doing. Um, there's kind of a weird hypochondriac feeling to the country right now. Um, and you know, we didn't know that the Soviet Union was in decline to the extent it was until much later. So I think that's worth considering. Uh, we don't know 
the extent of how much China is suffering right now. It might not be much. Um, it might be a lot. Um, so watch out for Patrick's piece. I think it's an angle that is rarely discussed, but might be worth thinking about a little bit. 70% of all Chinese wealth is tied up in their property sector. So when we think we have a big bubble here in Canada, which we do when it comes to real estate, that is just a mind-blowing number to think about um, and how this government has pulled, Sean, so much of the future demand of their economy into the present. And now at this inflection point, what is their future? It is a future of demographic decline brought about by the one-child policy. So... I agree with Stuart. I think I think in some ways we may be at peak China. I don't know what you think about that, Sean. Maybe this is, like many things, that famous expression, because I did study Hegel at university, so I know this, the owl of Minerva departs at dusk. Don't, don't you love that? The Germans always have these wonderful phases, which is basically the spirit of history moves on at the very moment that we've we think we've arrived at understanding of what that spirit is. Maybe all of this chest thumping about China, it's real. We have to be... We have to be careful about China, but what if it's all, in a sense, just the high watermark and China's threats internationally, its ability to rise to world civilizational status, it's, it, that's not what the future holds. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I did a great podcast. Um, I mean, the content of the guest, not the host, uh, with Timothy Brook, um, the UBC uh, historian. A, a few weeks ago, I'd encourage listeners to check it out. I, I put this question to him and, and, um, you know, they've managed to dramatically raise their GDP per capita, uh, in a short period of time through essentially copying, um, American and Western innovation that they leveraged their one comparative advantage, which was low cost labor, but they've kind of hit a ceiling on that economic development model. And the outstanding question is, can China compete with the West in the kind of high value innovation. Certainly the Chinese state has those aspirations, um, but I'd like to think that there are some inherent in incentives embedded in liberal democratic society. Um, you know, the re returns that people can uh, gain from innovation, you know, the kind of um, the way in which it enables creativity and free thinking and all the rest, which they don't have and is gonna make that jump from where they've gotten to now to something approximating our standard of living, very difficult. Uh, and so I think there is a good case that um, they, they may never get there. The only thing I will say is that 1.3 billion people, they don't have to become as rich as us to be uh, a real geopolitical threat. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I, let's give credit where credit's due. I don't know what motivated them, but the, the Trudeau government is finally saying the right things. Um, and, you know, it seems to me um, you know, we're moving in the direction of a new geopolitical context, which uh, business leaders listening to the podcast today, investors, um, you know, things are going to look a lot different than they did, you know, in the era of the end of history, as you put it earlier, Richard. Um, you know, this is going to look, I think, a bit more like pre-Fukuyama's end of history than it, than, it, than it did in the immediate aftermath. Yeah, so I'm going to be really pretentious and mention a third philosopher, Joseph de Mestre, that French uh, provocateur um, of, I think he was writing in the late 18th century, demographics is destiny. He was the guy that coined that phrase. And I think that's all you need to know about China. I think their demographics are horrible. And if you do not have a dependency ratio that allows you 
to divert significant societal resources into productive long-term investments in things other than taking care of the elderly, which is the opposite of it's important, but it's not a productive long-term investment, uh, you will experience uh, decline, relative decline in power uh, vis-a-vis your peer nations. And the U.S., all kinds of problems, but boy, do their demographics uh, look a heck of a lot better than Europe, than Canada, certainly than China and Japan. I don't know. I'm long America. I used to not be, but increasingly I am long America. USA, USA. <laughs> we started with the, with the with the demography of Quebec and rending with the demography of China. Nice. And what's interesting, there's there's a bit of a story there for both yeah. for, for, for both places. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, great chat. We'll do this all again next Friday. But Stuart, last word to you. What am I going to see in my hub on on Monday when I open my per diem email? Uh, you are going to see the next um, piece in our uh, Medicare Meltdown series, nice. which was written by me. And it's actually about the aging population. So Wow. We didn't even coordinate this, guys. This sounds like this show has a producer. Amal, are you sending notes to us? I can't believe this. We also have something else to watch out for, probably Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, is Jeff Russ's piece on Pierre Polyev's media strategy of nice. not talking to the media. So um, it'll be a fun week. Okay, good stuff. And hey, if you're enjoying The Hub, we'd love to have you as a donor for as little as 25 bucks a year. Uh, you can support everything that we're about and get a charitable tax receipt at the same time. Uh, so hey, check out our website, www.thehub.ca. Click subscribe, the top right-hand corner. We'd love to have you as part of our community. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues that's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.